Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your headspace and timing is set correctly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Headspace and Timing. If this is your first time listening, and thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. Hey folks, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Dwayne France, and I appreciate you joining us again. Uh, just the amount of time that you take to learn more about veteran mental health uh, is going to help the way that you change uh, change the way that you think about veteran mental health. And I think today we're going to have a really good perspective uh, because I have uh, my guest today is Brian Dorries, uh, who is the founder uh, and uh, and lead guy on a project called Theater of War, and we'll definitely get into what it is uh, in a little bit. But uh, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Dwayne, for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, maybe to start off, Brian, if you can just give a little bit of intro uh, of who you are, and, and maybe a little bit of what Theater of War is. Sure. So I'm I'm Brian Dorries, and the founder of a project called Theater of War. I'm the artistic director of Theater of War Productions, which takes its name from the project. And, um, you know, uh, before 2007, I didn't know a single person in the military active duty. Um, and I studied classics in, in college, and I was told by many, thankfully not my own parents, that I would never make a living. And um, I, as a young student studying ancient Greek, um, became kind of acutely aware and passionate uh, about the uh, the fact that I thought these ancient stories had much larger audiences to reach than the rarefied few of us who had the privilege of studying them in college or university. And even as an 18-year-old, sort of had this sort of passionate, almost evangelical desire to take these classical texts from fifth century Athens and connect them with other audiences. Um, audiences 
I didn't really know at the time, but audiences, at least in my very, very sort of un unformed hunch, that uh, by virtue of their life experiences might have some uh, knowledge of the, the some of the themes that are in these stories. And um, so by way of that, um, in my uh, early 20s, after graduating from college, um, early to mid-20s, I had a series of life experiences which reoriented my relationship to Greek tragedy. Um, I lost my girlfriend, uh, who was uh, cystic fibrosis. Um, she was 22 and I was 26 when she died, and I was her principal caregiver. And over a 20-month period, she had something like 40 surgeries. And um, and I experienced the, suff the sort of witnessing the suffering of another human being. I experienced, I think, what we now call moral injury, not on the scale of combat veterans do, but I definitely experienced it in terms of my own ambivalence in the in the and, and in the face of a, someone suffering. And you know, it's amazing how life can thrust you into a position where no matter what choice you make, you'll be haunted by your choice. And um, then I lost my father, and he had a kidney transplant. And between Laura's, uh, my girlfriend's lung transplant, and my father's kid kidney transplant, I spent a good deal of my 20s in hospital. So I started translating um, – uh, I started returning to the plays I loved and knew and specifically focused on translating this play Philoctetes, which um, is about a combat veteran who, um, on the way to the Trojan War, is – contracts a, a chronic illness from a snake bite and is abandoned by his own men on a desolate island for nine years. And the play is about what happens when the Greeks learn that in order to win the Trojan War, they have to go back and get this man, Philoctetes, off the island along with his invincible weapon and bring them to Troy. The play at its core is about a young man named Neoptolemus, who's the son of Achilles, whose name in Greek means new to war, who uh, has come with ambition to the Trojan War to make a name for himself, but whose first assignment, his first mission, is to deceive another warrior and steal his weapon and use it against him when he's ordered by his commanding officer, Odysseus, to uh, betray the wounded warrior. And um, so anyway, I, I had drawn to this because I read the play and all of a sudden... It was as if the Greek plays that I'd known and loved were no longer theoretical or academic. It's as if, it was as if they had been written for me or about me or to me, like a letter from the ancient world. And what they did was I took solace in, their, in the fact that I wasn't the only person on the planet to have an agenda or to have felt ambivalent in the face of another human being suffering or to have met the limits of my own compassion. Um or to have betrayed myself or you know any of these things where I felt grief or loss or and um, I got this hunch that if I could simply put this play Philoctetes in front of audiences with skin in the game something would happen so I did a reading of the play at a sort of political theater festival downtown in Manhattan at a place called the Culture Project and after that reading I was approached by a doctor who invited me to do a performance in a hospital and um, uh, so I took the opportunity and performing the play for medical students and doctors, uh, I had my first 
real epiphany. And the epiphany was that the audience with skin in the game knows more than I do. Always knows more than I do. And that when you approach an audience with humility and reverence for what they might know, uh, something new is possible that wasn't possible before. And listening to these doctors and medical students speak about the play, it was as if a veil had been lifted and I saw that I barely apprehended what the play was actually about, and yet I had translated it from Greek for very personal reasons. And I suppose that was the beginning of this path that I'm now on. So um, we uh, around that time, it was 2007, when I first did my hospital reading at Cornell, while Cornell uh, Medical School up in Manhattan, Upper East Side, the Walter Reed scandal broke in the um, Washington Post and on every newspaper in the country, uh, starting with the Washington Post, but every other newspaper too, was Philoctetes. Uh, a warrior abandoned by his own men, his own people, his own system, left on an island of chronic illness with substandard care. And it occurred to me that the play might be more relevant now than it was in 409 BC when it was first performed because through modern medicine and through modern warfare, we've created the conditions to abandon individuals like Philoctetes on islands of chronic illness for even longer than nine years. We've actually created more islands um, because, of course, more than 40,000 people have survived wounds that would have killed them in any previous conflict. And because we haven't even begun to develop a, you know, a vocabulary, we've come up with an acronym and a few words to really describe the psychological impact of these experiences. Um, so how do we get these individuals off the islands? Um, you know, became a sort of central question of the work. So that led me to think, well, let, maybe I could, um, if I could just simply put this play in front of people at Walter Reed, something would happen. And I didn't know anyone in the military. And... Um, it took a year and a half for me to find someone willing to let me in. I also took me a year and a half to learn how to talk to folks in the military, to earn their trust, to sit with them, to like project kind of non-judgment, um, to actually cultivate relationships. Um, but it wasn't until August of 2018 when I was reading the New York Times in a relatively controversial article, an investigative piece called War Torn, in which Jonathan Shea is quoted, um, it's a story about the wave of violence that was returning to our shores, purportedly from Iraq and Afghanistan, with veterans committing crimes, homicides, and suicides. Um, that in that article, Jonathan Shea was quoted in a section called An Ancient Connection, talking about the Homeric epics and their role in the ancient world as a kind of uh, tool for communalizing trauma. Uh, and then under Jonathan Shea's section in the article, there was another um, sir, another psychiatrist quoted. His name was uh, Captain William P. Nash, uh, and he uh, Nash Bill Nash, who was at the time was the head of combat operational stress control for the U.S. Marine Corps. And Bill said in the New York Times, "I begin every conversation I have with Marines about combat stress with the ancient story of Sophocles' Ajax." And I'd already been working on that play, thinking about military audiences since the Walter Reed scandal. And I had Philoctetes in the pocket. 
So I just started emailing until I finally got Bill. And he said, I don't know about a Marine performance on a base, but how about 400 Marines in a Hyatt ballroom in San Diego at a you know, conference on combat stress? And that's how Theater of War was born, because six, eight months later, I brought four actors to San Diego. We convinced seven out of 700 Marines and their spouses, we convinced 400 to, ch to choose ancient Greek dinner theater over free tickets to a San Diego Padres game. And we blasted them out with six scenes from these two plays, Ajax and Philoctetes. Ajax, as you may know, being a story of a great warrior who loses his best friend Achilles in combat, and then after being betrayed by his command, um, you know, loses his way and sort of blinded with rage, ends up killing animals instead of the very men he wanted to kill, the commanding officers, ultimately takes his own life in shame for what he's done against the pleading of his wife and his troops. And um, So we did the six scenes for the 400 Marines, and this incredible thing happened, which I had no context for. I'd never been in a room with that many people in uniforms, let alone, you know, even engaged with anybody in that way in the military but all the blackberries at that time people used blackberries still went away and you could hear a pin drop and all these marines sort of leaned forward in their chairs and they just locked on they they, they stared at this and i'd never seen this level of attention in the in the um in the theater in the commercial or non-profit theater even with the greatest plays i've ever seen I'd never seen anything like it and, uh, of course, what I was getting a taste of, which I had no idea at the time, was what it sounds like when an audience is listening to a story that is of life and death significance to them. Right. When the stakes in 2008 were so high, and when individuals in the military, in spite of the over a billion dollars that Congress had appropriated to f meet these invisible wounds and to address them, uh, that it was a career-ending gesture to raise your hands, perceived to be one, to say I'm struggling with an invisible wound at that time, and that's what we—that was the depth of the silence and the attention that we were hearing. And then we scheduled a 45-minute discussion following the reading of these two plays, and um, with actors like Jesse Eisenberg and David Sertharen and Bill Camp, these were terrific actors. Uh, and the discussion lasted three and a half hours and had to be cut off close to midnight and scores of people got up and spoke from every rank from junior enlisted to high ranking um you know colonels and there were generals sitting in the back i wasn't aware of at the time but generals wives who spoke sergeant major uh, ronald green who became sergeant major in the marine corps spoke really beautifully that night and everyone who spoke quoted lines from Sophocles' plays as if they'd known the plays their entire lives and then related them to some personal story, some harrowing personal story, a sort of moral discomfort that they'd probably never shared in private, let alone in front of 400 people. And we realized that we had sort of, A, the depth of our ignorance was like unfathomable. You know, like we actually had no idea what was happening other than something highly coded and sophisticated that seemed to, like to seem like, like almost like an external hard drive had been plugged into the right plug and everything worked on both ends the audience knew what to do and the play knew what to do 
And um, and then it became clear that the Greek tragedy, as Jonathan Shea argues in the coast of Vietnam, but many others have as well, I think is as refined a technology as an iPhone um, for eliciting a very specific human response and communalizing really difficult human experiences and trauma. So briefly after that, uh, a few months later, I find myself sitting around a giant table in Arlington at the offices of the highest-ranking psychiatrists in the U.S. military at the time, and she has all these colonels and other generals around, and she's saying things like, I think we should be doing theater of war in football stadiums for 40,000 troops at a time. And I'm saying, well, you know, that may have been the scale of the ancient world because the plays were performed in the ancient context for as many as 17,000 citizen soldiers uh, in a century in which the Athenians saw nearly 80 years of war. But that's not the scale of intimate discussion. And, and could we maybe just pare back our expectations a little bit? And she said, that's the scale of our problem. It is. Um, and so then we um, embarked on the most ambitious partnership between artists and the Department of Defense in American history, and I, I, I contend. And we did 100 performances of Greek, these plays by Sophocles in our first year on military bases all over the world, from Japan, Germany, um, Gitmo, Conus, Oconus, VA hospitals, homeless shelters. And we've now done 407 performances. Tomorrow's our 408th for the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Washington, which I hope will sort of reinvigorate our program. Even if it doesn't, it's a great honor to be able to try to have a conversation with people at that level. Um, and out of that one project, 20 other projects have grown. So we've now done more than 650 performances across 20 projects that all address pressing public health and social justice issues through a combination of live theatrical performances of ancient Greek tragedies, primarily, and guided discussions. And everything we know we learned from the U.S. military, um, from our audiences, which taught us how this works. Um, and uh, just last March, I was named Artist in Residence for New York City, um, Public Artist in Residence. And what that means is we're, we've got a grant and we're delivering 65 performances across all five boroughs, across all of our 20 projects, uh, engaging veterans and their communities and mostly vulnerable populations and homeless shelters, housing projects, um, domestic violence shelters, um, and veterans in, that, in this instance have kind of become the Greek chorus, this cohort of younger veterans, these millennial veterans or you know, just post-millennial, who both have the sensitivity and the desire to articulate their trauma in service of others and by virtue of do, doing that heal through the process of helping other people and it becomes this incredible sort of virtuous cycle of service where um, this cohort from Iraq and Afghanistan is actually changing the face of mental health by virtue of their um, ability to share their stories with much larger populations of people who have experienced all kinds of other traumas. So that's the sort of project in a nutshell. <laughs> and that's where we are now. It's a really fascinating place. Uh, almost 10 years later, 
uh, having spent the better part of the last 10 years just traveling 150 days a year doing this work all over the world. That is, uh, that's an amazing story. Uh, that is an amazing, um, you know, miraculous set of coincidences, right place, right time. Yes. Um, it, it, and, and everything just sort of uh, being in the right place. It, a couple of things um, yeah. that, that come to mind. Uh, one, you were talking about, um, you know, the audience is no more than me. Uh, as I was listening to you, I got the sense that um, the audiences knew more than the play, but the audience didn't know it. Exactly. The audience wasn't aware of it. And you, as the performers, didn't know what the audience knew. And so this was two halves of a, of, of a symbiotic uh, yes. um, you know, coin. Um, that that your your uh, description of, of a hard drive, an external hard drive, plugging into an operating system that never knew that that part of the hard drive was was even missing. Uh, I yeah, find that amazing. yeah, that's right. That's right. Also, because we don't have rituals of communalizing trauma in our culture, um, so so we met a need, and then when you meet a need, and it's clear that you're meeting a need. What I've discovered and we've discovered is that structures of support emerge um, and the path illuminates itself and we keep going in spite of, of course, as I'm sure you know, the haters, not the haters of theater of war, but the people who believe, you know, all of the just completely narrow minded cliches about mental health that our work tries to combat by bringing these true perspectives into the light. One of the hardest things about the work is actually, it's truly democratizing. We can all have a response to a play, and thereby, every response is valid. And as facilitator of these discussions, and I didn't know how to facilitate it first, but it's sort of like stand-up tragedy, like 100 performances, and I started to get better. Um, after sort of ha having my ass handed to me a couple of times by like Eighth and I Marines, or like, you know, people just weren't buying it, and you know, like, having to learn how to reach people uh, and put them at ease and get them to open up and engage. Um, it's one of the hardest parts of doing this work is finding a way to validate every perspective, no matter how repugnant I might find it to be. And what I've discovered is the myriad ways, not just that artists, but mental health professionals can condescend to the intelligence and also the experience of individuals who've experienced trauma, loss, betrayal, mortal injury, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I mean this because in the early days, when someone said something repugnant, such as um, something disparaging about people who have thought about or committed suicide, I would always try to jump into the breach to protect the veterans in the audience who might be hurt or offended by what may amount to be hate speech in the end of the day when people sort of say these things. But I learned over the years to stop, for a number of reasons, trying to protect anyone because A, there's nothing, as I've learned as a civilian, there's nothing that a veteran, that any civilian could say that a veteran has not heard or thought himself or herself. And B, when the hateful things are said in an open forum, it actually results in the most productive conversation. Because we can at least, at least at that point, we can address what many people in the audience actually think. 
Um, and, and I think that's that's something else that uh, that it sounds like what Theater Ward does um, is, as you even said, it's a technology, it's a medium, it's a medium that carries a message. Um, that's not to say that it's inoffensive, um, but I often talk to my veterans uh, that I work with as a mental health counselor about uh, watching the play versus being in the play. Um, yeah. When when they're talking about their experiences, their their um, you know their their trauma, what they experience, uh, a lot of times as they're recounting it to me, they're actually in the play. They're they're an actor in the 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 uh, the event. Yeah. Um, whereas we need to move them into the audience so that they can look at the sure. event in a dispassionate level. Yeah. And, and so the, the theater of war um, in, in the story of Ajax is doing that for them. It's, it's telling them their own story without them being an actor in it. Yeah, I mean, there's several tools at work in our in theater of war. One is distance. By using, you know, one of the plugins, you know, in terms of the operating system or one of the ways the the external hard drive actually f fits into the system is through a set of like core values, sort yes. of warrior ethos. Right. So on one hand, it's extremely familiar. On the other hand, it's completely strange. It's another culture. It's another time, and we're not doing some kind of documentary theater, you know, depiction of soldiers I mean, or Marines. Over time, I've become so sensitized to how condescending it is when artists, especially theater artists, but also film and television, you know, put on uniforms and after like a day of faux boot camp, start marching around as if they have any understanding of the highly nuanced and coded semiotics of even wearing a uniform or what it means to actually march or what it means to, you know, say some of the, you know, things that folks in the military say. With the advantage of theater of wars, we're not saying this is you. We're not saying this is our imitation of you. We're not. We're not. We're not. We're not condescending. We're simply saying, in this ancient, distant object, this thing, what do you see of yourself in this? And it's a totally different posture, and it allows people to actually make their own connections. And it also, in these archetypal stories, allows people. It is obviously coercive because we want people to feel it affectively to get into it, but they aren't enacting it. That, that's a great distinction. And it becomes their choice during the discussion that follows as to whether they speak at all, or if they say, I was really struck when Ajax said, you know, expressed a great man must live in honor or die an honorable death. The concept of death before dishonor is something I've been thinking about. Or they say, I am Ajax, and here's why. Um, and we get all, you know, in a discussion, we always have a range of those types of responses. The other tool is discomfort. You know, we've gotten to this point, and I think mental health professionals as well as the academy are equally to blame for creating this culture of protectionism around people who've already experienced great trauma to the point where of course, no one wants to or intends to or wants to re-traumatize anyone. But when it comes to actually having truthful, open, candid exchange about these issues, we actually have to create a space where they can be acknowledged and expressed. And so the intensity of the emotions expressed in the plays, the rage, the betrayal, the loss, the sacrifice, the love, all of it, clears room in the space to say in the venue, 
look, the actors have already gone as far as one can humanly go. Paul Giamatti is just like stroked out in front of you, screaming his head off. Um, so if you want to meet us halfway, that's fine. It's already been said. I've had Vietnam nurses, who I'm sure you know are extremely reticent about their experiences, stand up and say things like, if you can hear that, then you can hear this to the audience. That is usually a mixed civilian military audience. And I think that tool of discomfort isn't to be underestimated. In the original, in the early days, I thought that theater of war was about empathy, that it's, it's that was, you know, of, by, and for empathy. And empathy may be a byproduct, if you believe in empathy, of the project. But I actually think the most potent tool, the most potent part of the medium is shared discomfort. So the note that I give actors before they go on stage is, and this, you know, this is going to sound pretty radical when you're talking about a voluntold audience of a thousand Marines. Make them wish they'd never come. Because if we push an audience past the place where they're comfortable and they're scanning for the exits just for a few minutes during the performance, like the entire performance, then no matter what divides the audience, we can all share in having been made felt that way. And um, so that becomes very handy when dealing with our extremely divided nation and creating a context in which people who don't share ideologies or beliefs or religions or perspectives can find common ground. And uh, that's a, something, a tool we've applied to like, you know, 19 other subjects um, as we've proliferated the work. No, and, and, I, and I saw that, um, as a matter of fact, you have a performance coming up in St. Louis, Antigone and Ferguson. Yes. Um, which is uh, which is interesting and, and, and definitely to me, uh, whereas uh, I'm from St. Louis. Uh, you are. I grew up... Uh, um, a couple of townships away from Ferguson. I went to yeah. community college across the highway from Ferguson. My family is there. And, and so that whole entire subject is important to me. And I can see that, how it, it provides, it, it's sort of like, and, and not to disparage it, but grandma yeah. coming over, right? Yeah. Let's, let's just calm the, the seas and grandma comes over and then let's have a real conversation. I mean, it's this, yeah. this, this third power um, that's yes. against this. I never thought of it that way, but I think that's right. Um, and there's some authority within the military context. There's some authority in this idea that this man who wrote these plays, Sophocles, had been elected general twice. I mean, sure. um, and there's some still some reverence for Thucydides and for um, Herodotus and the military brass. And it was part of the sort of Trojan horse through which you know, I rolled this thing in. No pun intended. You know, again, yeah, again, with the help of Jonathan Shea's work, where he'd actually been advising on Oscar with the Marine Corps and. Um, with the VA and, you know, uh, you know, had been advising on a sort of wholesale rethinking of how we talk about the difference between an autonomic nervous system response and something that's far more spiritual in nature and, and, uh, and unclassifiable in the terms of the DSM, you know, metrics. And um, the plays speak directly to that. That's the thing. That's where he's tapped into it, too, that the center of these plays is betrayal. Philoctetes is abandoned on an island for nine years, and he, in order to heal, in order to go to Troy and, and to receive the healing help of the doctor's sons of Asclepius who await him there, he has to move past the shame and rage he feels by being abandoned by the very system he has to now rejoin. 
And I can't, you know, obviously there's a million ways that maps to the experience, at least we've heard from audiences and veterans right. with regard to the VA, with regard to even just the difference between healthcare within the DOD and the VA system and moving between those systems and um, what does it actually require? And uh, we've been doing a lot of performances in homeless shelters for veterans. You know, Philoctetes has to put down his invincible weapon in order to accept help. So homeless veterans say, you, every day in here they're asking me to put down my weapon, to make myself as vulnerable as I possibly can, and to trust the system will work when I've been betrayed time and time again by it. And Ajax is abandoned. I mean, he's abandoned on the sand dune and essentially left in a moment of suicidal ideation by his family, but also he's betrayed by his commanding officers. And at the center of both plays are two characters who are calling out to their gods for answers and not getting any replies. And there's also something about presenting contemporary military audiences with Greek polytheism. Um, that's also non-threatening. No one worships these gods anymore. And we can talk about something that at its core is a spiritual question without getting caught up. We can be ecumenical in the conversation without being caught up in people's specific religious ideas. You can, you can talk spirituality without talking religion. And I think that's another fascinating thing about what even what you personally did to start uh, and then what Theater of War as a project does is stepping into a gap that exists. Yeah. Um, is the, the, you know, we've, we've heard, you know, the civilian-military divide. I've written on it. I've, I've talked about it before. Um, and, and those of us like, like myself who, are, uh, who have the, the lived experience of combat are stepping into the mental health role trying to bridge that gap. So yeah. trying to step into that side. Um, whereas uh, you were at, you were uh, trained in classical literature and stepped into the gap and reached out um, to to attempt to learn. Uh, yes, to that's learn, right. Uh, learn, you know, to, to bridge the divide. I mean, and I, I know that stuff kind of sounds cliche, um, but but one thing, and, and you've you've referenced Jonathan Shea, and and I've you know uh, <laughs> a fan of his work and, and Brett yeah. Litz and Moral Injury. Yes. Uh, but in, but in his book, uh, Shea talks about how um, you know he doesn't have any native understanding because he had never served in the military. Right. He could get ninety nine point nine percent there, but yes. that still point zero one percent was such a wide gulf that uh, that that you know he wouldn't be able to get there. And you know I liken that to uh, you know I could go live in Germany and. And, and learn German and German history and, and actually, you know, do all that I can, but I still would not at my core be a native born German. Um, and, and for some veterans, um, just somebody even reaching out into that gap is enough to say, hey, there's somebody else out there that's actually wanting to help me. You know, I was really struck, you know, um, Phil Cly, the National Book Award winner who wrote Redeployment, a set of short stories. You know, he was a Marine public affairs officer, but he deployed multiple times. And um, He wrote this really insightful op-ed for the New York Times called A Failure of Imagination. And um, in it, he challenges his fellow veterans and says, it's a failure of imagination. And I would just put parenthetically Brian here speaking, but totally reasonable position when it comes to trauma 
to feel out, outside the parentheses now to, to say no one can possibly understand my experience except the people who were in the exact same place at the exact same time I was. It's a failure of imagination to think that no one can understand. It's an even greater failure on the imagination of civilians to say, how could I possibly understand? And I do think when we come to theater of war, what we're talking about isn't the experience of war. We're talking about the stimulation of imagination. So that an audience of civilians, because a lot of our performances now are for very mixed audiences. Sometimes it can be 80% civilians. This is an audience that's it skews in the direction of civilians who's never actually been to war, can be stimulated not to sensationalize war, not to be titillated, not to consume the suffering of veterans, but to actually contemplate and imagine the experience, even if they have no way of actually accessing it. And in so doing, I think that's the gesture you were talking about before of leaning toward that experience with humility and a desire to learn, and, and also that we do as human beings have these faculties that intuitively can lead us not to understand each other's experience, but to understand the same type of isolation that results from that experience. It seems like from like we've done performances for over 100,000 veterans at this point, but now we've also done performances for scores of tens of thousands of other communities of trauma that have experienced, you know, we have a sexual assault project, we have projects on political violence, gun violence, police community relations, um, you know, civil unrest, um, domestic violence. It seems like the one singular thing that I can say as an observer of those audience members' responses to these plays is the singular response to trauma and to betrayal is the sensation or feeling that no one else has ever felt this way. Exactly, and, and I and and you know I'm I'm a, a visual thinker, which obviously I'm, I'm I'm certain you probably are too. You know, visualizing the um, uh, the plays, but but I, I see this this gulf, right? This gap, um, and there's a line of trees which which all the veterans are hiding, sort of in the wood line, yeah. um, and and not wanting to come out, and and you step out from the crowd of let's say civilians, um, and and you start to speak. And you speak to the the veterans, and you start to coax them out of the wood line, and, yeah. and they start to speak. Well, at the same time, you're leaning, you're you're turning back to uh, the civilians behind you, say, "No, come forward." There's that's there's, right. There's no fear here. There's no reason to to believe that that this is something um, that you're not bridging a gap. Is is as far as you're you're creating a bridge with your body. You're actually bringing two sides together. But it is physical. I think what you just described actually describes what it looks like at a performance. Because what we do is we do the reading, and then as soon as the reading is over, and no matter how famous the actors are, you know, like Jake Gyllenhaal and Francis McDormand may have just done the reading, and then immediately they go sit in the audience. They sit in the audience, and that gesture says, this is not about celebrity, it's not about process, this is about audience, and immediately we invite four members of the community in which we perform to come up and respond. And for Theater of War, that's a combat veteran or a veteran from Iraq and Afghanistan, a military spouse, a veteran from previous conflicts like Vietnam, and a mental health professional who works with the population in some way. And they respond from their guts. And I stand between that chorus and the audience and then mediate this discussion. It's not a Q&A. It is a fire that we light out in the audience with the kindling of these gut responses by these individuals with skin in the game. 
And it is an active, it's an active bridging um, these worlds. What I ask the audience, the, the, co the choir or the chorus to do, so to speak, these panelists, is to is to actually choose three or four moments in the plays that touch them and speak to them, to their guts, their hearts, and then to use those moments as a point of departure for their comments. So the first person who ever spoke at a theater of war performance was a military spouse. And she said, hello, my name is Marshall. I'm the proud mother. And she's from, uh, at the time, she was from Colorado. Um, she said, my name is Marshall. I'm the proud mother of a Marine, the wife of a Navy SEAL. My husband went away four times to war. And each time he came back just like Ajax, dragging invisible bodies into our house. And to quote from the play, our home is a slaughterhouse. Yes. So here's this military spouse. She's quoting from the play, and she's using it to reference this harrowing detail about her own experience as a as a, a spouse of a as a dependent of a military combat veteran and in so doing she's giving permission to all the other spouses in the room to follow her lead and what she's modeling is a kind of radical candor that's required for true understanding to begin to take place between disparate populations and life experiences and it takes enormous courage but when one or two or three people do it, when they go to that place and they use the play as the bridge, it the room opens up. You know, it, it opens up every time. And um, not always miraculously, because sometimes some communities are so buttoned up that just to name suicide or just to talk about psychological injury or just to give voice to the experience of the veteran who's been silent for decades, the father who never articulated his experience, uh, is enough. I mean, it's, it's a huge accomplishment. And for other audiences, it's like, I mean, I can't tell you the depth because I haven't found it yet. I mean, we had a performance. I keep asking this question, well, what's the proper, what's the appropriate response of civilians? Is it just to listen, just to shut up and listen? Um, at first, I thought that was what it was, because God knows civilians do need to shut up and listen. But then beyond that, it seemed like once uh, you know individuals who'd served in the military had shared their moral discomfort about experiences they'd had, had really revealed the repugnance of the choices they had to make, um, the appropriate response wasn't just to listen, it was to meet them in the muck. And to acknowledge that we're all fallible and we've all made these moral decisions and we all practice a kind of clinical detachment from what it is we should be feeling, but don't allow ourselves to feel just to get through our day and or through our jobs. So the first time it happened where I saw a noticeable change in the civilian audience was when this incredible combat veteran, Captain Shannon Meehan, who wrote a book about his service, uh, was at UVA and he, he talked about how he had ordered a missile strike on a house in Iraq as an army captain and had had faulty intelligence and had killed a family with children his own age, ch children's own age. And when he got back, he couldn't sleep. He couldn't live with himself. And he, you know, descended into this, um, you know, uh, what she recounts, you know, in his book into, into this struggle. And when he finished his story, to the 75% civilian audience in Charlottesville, Virginia, you know, there was this dead silent, and I went out to facilitate the discussion, and I said, does anyone have anything to say? And this guy shot his hand up in the back of the room, and he said, I don't know what I'm going to say, but I feel compelled to speak. That's usually a good sign. And he said, um, 
I'm a family physician. I work in this community. I don't know a single person in the military. And um, he said to Shannon, I just want to say, Captain Meehan, I don't feel I deserve to have been in the room to have heard your story. And Captain Meehan, Shannon, turned back up to this guy in the back rafters of this 800-seat theater, and he said, thank you so much for saying that, sir. I, too, feel I don't deserve to be here. Absolutely. And this incredible moment, this just suspension occurred, where all of a sudden I felt like the civilians maybe could hear on a different level. And then another time we're in Oregon doing a performance in a very liberal community, and at the end of the performance, I said, does anyone have anything burning with them to say it hasn't been addressed by one of my questions? And this woman shoots up her hand. She says, I'm a doctor in this community. And, I, and she starts to tremble and cry. And she says, I've just heard all these veteran stories. And I just want to say that uh, I have actively had patients come into my practice who were veterans who were struggling with clearly what could only have been the invisible wounds of war. And I have actively ignored their symptoms and not helped them for fear that by aiding them, I would be helping the war effort. And she breaks down and she says, and now I realize how fundamentally wrong that was and cruel. And I promise you all, I'll never do it again. Now, all the veterans that stuck around afterwards kind of rallied around this woman and said, that was so much better than thank you for your service. Thank you for your honesty. Yes. She revealed something morally repugnant or morally distressful about her own she revealed her own malpractice yes, as a doctor so, I mean, it was yeah you know she took a risk the same level of risk that the veterans were taking in the room she took that and she met them and so something about theater of war can create this space where that can happen and i think it's not theater of war it's not rocket science stories can do this no i and i agree i i, I think that uh, stories are powerful you know just uh, uh, the power of classical literature you know the uh, St. Crispin's Day speech is what gave us the term Band of Brothers. Uh, you, know, right. we don't, you know, all of these different things, and who doesn't love the, the large oratories? One of the things that you said very early on that I keep hearing over and over again, Brian, was you talk about the level of discomfort, there needing to be a discomfort um, yeah. in, in, in both sides. I, I definitely imagine uh, in the performers, uh, in the, the veterans in the audience, civilians in the audience, uh, but and in, in you said that uh, tomorrow, uh, which is going to be past the uh, uh, the time um, you're going to have performed this by the time that uh, this show airs. <laughs> speaking truth to power. Yeah. That, that that's what this is. That the theater of war is speaking truth to power. Not not power is in military sense, but the power of stigma, the power yeah. of of the the power of. Of, of ignorance, perhaps of of a lack of knowledge that that form of ignorance or blatant ignorance, but it's speaking truth in ancient words to the power of of people's masked beliefs about mental health. I think you're also it's um, a wholesale interrogation of masculinity. These plays, you know, they they poke so many holes in our contemporary notions of masculinity, and they intentionally do it. And how toxic, you know, the way we're indoctrinated into, and how it, and how it's pervasively sort of passed down. Um, if we do our job right uh, with a performance, if we hit an audience hard enough, then the lowest-ranking person in the room gets up and speaks in front of the highest. And so, in certain ways, it is truth to power. Sure. In the ancient, in the ancient world, according to the theories of Jack Winkler. 
a Princeton classicist an archaeologist and these archaeological theories that he you know referenced in this great essay that Jonathan Shea loves as well called the Phoebe song he um, makes this argument that you know the general sat in the front row the ten strata goi in thrones which we know is a fourth century phenomenon but likely was happening in the fifth century in some way and that the rest of the audience may have been seated according to tribe which was their unit military unit and according to rank with the hoplite cadets in the nosebleed section in the back as jonathan often says and of course the chorus may have been performed by adolescents who are matriculating into the military itself so these ephebes from that perspective when ajax takes his own life and of course the military i mean the the, the ancient Greek tragedy tragedians did not stage violence i mean like 99.9% of the time violence happened off stage and then a messenger would come on and tell the audience what happened. It was the oldest convention of the place. But in Ajax, Sophocles, who was a general, made the choice to have a combat veteran actor who's playing Ajax, a combat veteran with, you know, who's struggling with this internal struggle, not only take his own life at the very feet of the generals who are sitting in the theater of Dionysus, in the 5th century BCE, a century in which the Athenians saw nearly 80 years of war, but take the audience of 17,000 citizen soldiers through the entire logic, the in insidious logic of a full suicidal ideation. Right. You know, from betrayal to the world would be better off without me. And through every twist and turn of that logic, so it's clear that this is logic. This isn't madness. This is thinking, this is thought, and it's not weakness, it's a struggle. It's the greatest struggle that this warrior has actually ever encountered, in spite of his nine long years of combat. And I think that is such a powerful gesture of leadership on the part of this general Sophocles. No matter when it actually the play is dated, whether he was a general before he wrote it or after, like to have to have the balls to have a veteran kill himself at the feet of the very people who were sending people into battle. Um, and so that, that tomorrow we get to perform, tomorrow being you know, from this podcast, when it's being recorded, you know, tomorrow we perform for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and all the combatant commanders and their senior enlisted advisors and their spouses. And, you know, they're inviting us in because great leaders the great leaders who supported us in the u.s military and there have been many and there are also some really bad leaders who've been our detractors the great leaders know that in order to actually achieve what they're hoping to achieve they have to interrogate themselves they have to have this conversation they have to create a moment where the hierarchy dissolves and real discussion can take place and people can be truthful about their experience. And I think that's and that's where the, the speaking truth to power happens on, on several different, their own speaking truth to their own power, their own beliefs. Yes. Um, looking into Ajax's eyes as he goes through this process uh, and, and um, one in four, Brian, I'm sure you know of the, the, uh, yeah. the yeah, yeah. statistics. Um, there is a, a significant chance that uh, in that room tomorrow or any room, um, there are a large number of individuals who have been at that place yes. where Ajax was. Yes. Um, and so as they're looking in Ajax's eyes, they're looking in their own eyes and confronting their own truth. 
So after an early performance, the theater of war, this general stood up. I have, there's a question I ask all audiences. Um, why do you think Sophocles wrote this play and staged it for his community? And uh, at the time, the woman who answered it was the highest ranking general and the highest ranking psychiatrist in the U.S. Army. She's the woman who got theater of war off the ground. Um, Brigadier General Laurie Sutton, who's now the Commissioner of Veteran Services here in New York. She only had one star, and she was facing this audience in Arlington where we performed at a, at, a, at a conference where there were generals with three and four stars in the audience. And she said, I think Sophocles wrote the play, the plays, because he might have been the minority with regard to the compassion he felt for the individuals in his community who were struggling with the issues he portrayed in his plays. I think Sophocles wrote the plays, the general said, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And what's remarkable to me about that insight, hundreds of performances later, is that a play can do, a story can do both those things, both those things. Those are interrelated things. That an audience of people who've experienced the extremities of these, of these you know, challenges can feel validated, connected, and you can feel joy and even camaraderie and knowing they're not the only people on the planet or even in the room to have experienced these totally isolating things. And that the people who either deny it or are comfortable in their presumptions and judgments of people who've experienced it can have all of their presumptions upended and checked and called into question in a way that's profoundly uncomfortable. And that afflicting the comfortable is as important as comforting the afflicted, you know, to me reveals the complexity of what Sophocles designed and why it's so remarkable that it still works 2,500 years later. And I think that's, a, that's an amazingly powerful message, Brian. I tell my veterans, and again, I've written about it before, about how the guns don't go silent when the combat ends. Um, obviously, the the guns in Sophocles they didn't use guns back then, but but the no. the, the, the the theoretical guns or the you know uh, metaphorical guns didn't go silent uh, 2,500 years later, and and veterans should not either. Um, and you're giving them um, yeah. voice uh, and giving them an opportunity to open this up. I think this is what you're doing is an amazing work. Um, I'm, uh, you had performed out here at Fort Carson before, and I'm sorry that I missed it. Yeah, that was an amazing day. We yeah. did four back-to-back performances yeah. for 800 soldiers at a time. And, and unfortunately, I, I, uh, I guess I heard about it too late and, and didn't, uh, didn't get, get into it, but um, I'm definitely going to keep my eye out. So We're going to come back to the Air Force Academy, I think, in the next year. Um, we have a project with the Book of Job, which we've been invited to perform in the chapel, that amazing chapel. So yeah. um, I'll, I'll be sure to let you know when we, when we get that scheduled. So uh, <laughs> where can people find more about uh, performances you have coming up, more about the other programs? I mean, we just sure. it wasn't even the tip of the iceberg. Uh, yeah, so um, everything's at theaterofwar.com. Um, if you're in New York City, because of the residency here over the next two years, you can go to theaterofwar.nyc. Um, we spell theater the American way, E-R. And, um, you know, it's all there. If you want to go for a deeper dive, then, of course, you can read my book, The Theater of War, What Ancient Greek Tragedies Can Teach Us Today. If you want a kind of primer that doesn't require a lot of deep reading, um, 
we uh, we put we published uh, through uh, Pantheon and Knopf a graphic novel last year. That's a graphic novel adaptation of Homer's Odyssey, as told from the perspective of a marine on his last night um, in combat, a sergeant to his squad. We worked with several Marines on the development of the project, and we sort of field tested it at Camp Pendleton and some other places. And um, so it's called The Odyssey of Sergeant Jack Brennan. And um, it's not, you know, by any means a comprehensive telling of this Odyssey. It's just what's germane to this sergeant as he tries to prepare his Marines for their return back to, um, to in the instance of the... The, the novel back to Camp Pendleton. Um, and um, of course my translations, uh, which are the volume, which is out is called all that you've seen here is God, um, which uh, it starts off with an essay called the audience as translator. Cause I fundamentally believe that the audience is the ultimate translator, especially these military audiences. Um, all those are resources and tools um, on our website, you'll find videos of performances. There's a video of a recent performance and discussion at WNYC's The Green Space with uh, Francis McDormand, David Sturtheron, Reggie Cathy, Katie Irby. Um, there's a New York Times OpDocs video project in which uh, 15 veterans and their spouses uh, recited lines from both Ajax and Phil Actides and then talked about what the plays meant to them, which ran on Memorial Day this last year. It's still up on the site. And I was, uh, I was actually just watching that, and I'm gonna in the show notes. I'm gonna make uh, uh, make sure that the links of, of all these things. But I was trying to consider uh, which video I was gonna put into the show notes, and I, I think that one is uh, that's the one. That yeah. that one um, actually. You know, there's no veteran who doesn't have theater training who could sustain a full monologue like the professional actors we work with. But the way that the people who made it, the documentarians, sort of asked them to, like, take a small chunk of text, say it, and then talk about what it meant to them, the truth of their performance is unrivaled in the theater or on film. Like, uh, the great theater director, Peter Brook, who's now 92, he was over in London, and I sent the video from New York Times over to him, and he said... That is theater. Every word is true. And um, I'm, that's one of the things I'm most proud of this last year. Um, in the November issue of the Smithsonian Magazine, which comes out later this month on the shelves, um, there'll be a big profile of Theater of War Productions. It'll be our, our sort of latest. Uh, it'll take people up to date in terms of all the stuff we've been doing over the last couple of years. Now, I, I really um, uh, I, I was impressed um, by what I knew before, uh, but uh, the time that you've given me and, and the audience uh, has just impressed me even more, Brian. The, the, um, the effort that you've gone through to bridge that gap, um, it, where, where there is one, there will probably be many more. Yeah. Uh, and this can give veterans hope that, uh, you know, that, that if I do step out into that gap, that someone else is going to be stepping out to meet me. And if, and if nothing else, I think that's a benefit to what you've been doing. I sure hope so. Um, you know, if we had one message to deliver to veterans as civilians who are sort of shepherding this ancient material into the contemporary world, it's simply this. Um, you're not alone, as evidenced by these conversations we have all the time. You're not alone across the country and the world, because we're doing this sometimes seven nights a week. Most critically, 
you know, if you've ever had these thoughts or feelings, you're not alone across time. And that's the public health message of what we do. That's the public health message of Sophocles' plays, that these struggles, these moral struggles, these spiritual crises, these injuries, these invisible wounds are as old as humanity itself. And we shouldn't be lured into thinking just because we've developed a kind of mental health apparatus to describe them with acronyms, that there's something new about any of this. And the Greeks help us to connect with the fact that, you know, as a species, we haven't changed. Our technologies have changed rapidly. But we, as a people, are very much the same. And so the plays can be solace, I hope, to people who may feel like they're struggling and that no one else can understand their experience. To, to bring it around full circle, Brian, you said that uh, there are more <laughs> islands now. Uh, yeah. Well, we think there's less islands. We think we've no. created less islands, but we've created more islands. Um, but uh, but the idea of theater of war being a bridge, of, of you being a bridge to connect those islands and to keep that isolation from occurring. Um, I really appreciate your time tonight, and, uh, and, and I, I thank you on behalf of our audience. Oh, thanks, Dwayne. It's an honor and a privilege, and look forward to... Uh hearing what comes of uh, the podcast Uh, and to seeing you out there in uh, Colorado. Okay. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. That was a really great episode with Brian Dorries from theater of war. Uh, you know, I've been uh, interested in talking to Brian for a while, and uh, you heard a lot of the different things that he was talking about, having some parallels between our military experience in the current era and uh, the military experience from, uh, obviously, ancient times. Uh, Brian uh, uh, talked about a lot of different stuff there. I think one thing that I'd like to recap to bring out is what you didn't hear Brian say through that entire episode. Go back and listen to it again if you want to but he did not mention post-traumatic stress disorder once. Uh, Brian and I had a little bit of an off, uh, offline conversation about that, and, and uh, he's along with me, is that uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is not the end-all, be-all when it comes to veteran mental health. Uh, you heard a lot of uh, great stories about strength, stories about uh, courage, stories about people uh, standing up and, and, uh, and, and talking about their struggles with veteran mental health. Another point that I'd like to uh, sort of bring home is uh, Brian's ability as a civilian to step into the gap and decide that uh, he's going to try to understand what veterans are experiencing and try to communicate that in a different way. Uh, I was uh, recently having a conversation with uh, Chris Schaefer, a friend of the show. He was on uh, Jeff Adamek's show a little bit while back with him and his uh, co-author Brent. And, uh, and, and Chris and I were talking about this exact thing, about the need for both veterans to step into a gap uh, and for civilians to step into the gap of understanding uh, and really kind of build that together. And so I, I hope that you appreciated this episode. Uh, I was really proud to have uh, been able to connect with, uh, with Brian, especially the day before he had such a big event with the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the combatant commands, uh, and I heard that that went really well. You know, we talk a lot about uh, thank you for your service and and things like that. And as uh, this podcast is released, the uh, movie Thank You for Your Service has recently come out. And some of you might watch it, some of you might not, and that's uh, that's really up to you. Uh, 
but uh, but there's something that Brian had said in there that there are certain things like this that mean much more than thank you for your service, uh, and and that's really understanding what veterans are going through. So uh, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for your feedback. Uh, actually, um, we'd like to hear more of your feedback. We invite you to go to changeyourpov.com forward slash feedback and uh, let us know how we're doing not just the headspace and timing show but the change your pov podcast network overall we're uh, trying to figure out how to best meet your needs and uh, and one of the things uh, that i heard was that uh, uh, those who are listening kind of want to have a recap at the end and so this little piece that we're tagging on at the end is a direct result of uh, listener feedback and so we always appreciate it Let us know how we're doing. Make sure to uh, tune in next week and uh, make sure to listen to my buddy Jeff Adamek's show tomorrow. Thanks. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability So there you have it, folks. Another episode of Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to changing your perspective on veteran mental health. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use the track Not Alone from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc's a guy who's trying to bring the discussions about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you need to check him out. Head over to therealdoctodd.com to purchase the album and support the cause. You're not alone, veterans. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly, death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability Every shred, every last thread of my identity Conquer my fragility, eliminate the enemy
you guys. Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink. Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man. You've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up. You know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.